Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, San Diego. Bienvenidos a todos. It's now January 14th, 2015. San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner is delivering his very first State of the City address. Getting to this moment had been like walking a tightrope for the new mayor. At this point in his career, Faulkner had carved a path as a fiscally conservative, socially liberal politician. He took office as the only Republican mayor in America's 10 largest cities. And after taking over for his predecessor who resigned in disgrace, Faulkner needed to project stability, compromise, a coming together. He talked about the more mundane aspects of local politics. And as a cyclist, if you think driving over a pothole is bad, try hitting one on a bike. He announced a binational initiative with the mayor of Tijuana in Spanish. Vamos a seguir trabajando juntos para crear oportunidades para mejorar las vidas de nuestros residentes en ambos lados de la frontera. But about 30 minutes into the speech, Faulkner pivoted. But I want to take a moment now to talk about an important part of the fabric of our community. I want to talk about our football team. It's not particularly surprising that any San Diego mayor would be devoting precious time in their keynote speech to talking about the Chargers. At this point, the franchise had been speculating a move to Los Angeles for over a dozen years. But just a week before Faulkner was set to give this speech, St. Louis Rams owner Stan Kroenke had announced his intention to build a world-class stadium in the Los Angeles suburb of Inglewood. At no point in San Diego's history has the possibility of the Chargers moving to Los Angeles been more real. The race was on between the NFL owners for the LA market, and Chargers owner Dean Spanos had made no bones about his eyes looking to the north. San Diego needed to turn its talk into action. The city was on edge. And so, Faulkner made some news. And I'm announcing tonight that I am assembling a group of civic leaders to recommend a location and develop a viable financing plan. They will explore all possibilities to finance this project with my clear direction that it must present a good and fair deal for San Diego taxpayers. I will not accept or support anything less. This stadium task force was the biggest step any of San Diego's mayors had taken to building a new stadium. But the patience of the Spanos family was wearing thin. After all, Kevin Faulkner was the seventh mayor since the Chargers began seeking a new home in San Diego. Why would this guy be any different? Well, before ending this portion of the speech, Faulkner would make one final promise. This is San Diego's team. And San Diegans will have the final say with a public vote. This episode chronicles the final two years of the San Diego Chargers, a leverage game between an embattled NFL franchise and the city that it had called home for over five decades. When San Diego was confronted with the errors of its past, the political and financial realities of its present, and the great unknown of its future. And as the story drags on, one thing would become clear. Football was finally going on the ballot. My goal is that when the season ends, we won't be talking about whether the Chargers are moving. We'll be talking about the proposal to keep them here where they belong. We will fight to keep the folks in America's finest city. I'm your host, Rafi Cantor. This is Bolted. Chapter 5, The Definition of Insanity. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. And the only place you should be betting on these sports is at betonline.ag. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. I wanted to try this out myself, so I looked for some entertainment props, and right now on BetOnline, you can bet on this year's Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Now, Joey Chestnut, the undisputed goat of competitive eating, has a line of over under 74.5 hot dogs. 74.5 hot dogs. Mind you, they're eating this in 10 minutes. So taking the over would mean that Chestnut would need to at least tie his world record of 75 dogs that he set last year. Now you might be thinking, Rafi, 
That's crazy. 75 dogs in 10 minutes. But I want you to understand that Joey Chestnut has broken his own world record six times. Six times. I think he's going to do it for a seventh time. Give me the over at plus 105. Bet Online has hundreds of props with real-time odds on almost anything you can imagine. And of course, the 24-hour online casino. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Before we begin this episode, we just want to note that Mayor Kevin Faulkner declined multiple requests for an interview and that this episode contained strong language that may be upsetting to some listeners. Last episode, we talked about the Chargers' on- and off-field battles in the best of circumstances when the football team was really good, and the Spanos family wanted to build a stadium in San Diego. In this chapter of the story, the calculus would be much different. Stan Kroenke's plan to build a stadium in LA meant that the end of the NFL's absence in the City of Angels was certain. The question was, who would win the race to get there first? San Diego was going to have to make a very compelling argument to retain the Chargers, and the person making that argument was Mayor Kevin Faulkner. Uh, Mayor uh, Kevin Faulkner was a PR guy. Um, You know, his wife had done well with her own small business. And in 2002, he decided to run for city council. The San Diego that existed when Kevin Faulkner first ran for public office in 2002 was a much different one than exists today. The pension crisis hadn't yet exploded. The city was still pretty conservative leaning. There were whispers about a Chargers move to LA, but they were only whispers. Here's the voice of San Diego's Scott Lewis with more. He ran for city council against a guy named Mike Zuquette, who was from the left. On the, uh, he was a labor union leader and a really smart guy. Um, and he won that race against Kevin Faulkner. But Faulkner's time as a private citizen wouldn't last long because trouble was coming for Michael Zuquette. But, you know, a couple, several months after that, got into a scandal of his own uh, regarding some strip clubs and such in 2003. He was later completely acquitted of everything, but at first he was in a lot of trouble. You may remember that scandal back from episode one. Strippergate. 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 Zuquette would eventually be cleared of wrongdoing, but the damage was done. Zuquette ends up having to resign, and that seat opens up. And so Kevin Faulkner runs against Lorena Gonzalez, now one of the most powerful legislators in the entire state. Uh, Lorena Gonzalez runs for city council in this seat. Kevin Faulkner wins. Faulkner would serve on the city council for eight years, and he was about to reach his term limit when Democrat Bob Filner was elected mayor in 2012. Bob Filner wins. Bob Filner's crazy, (laughs) just uh, uh, a nutcase, gets in there, uh, gets ousted after just a few months because of of his own scandals and and, uh, sexual harassment and assault of women. And so after yet another Democrat is forced to resign from office, Faulkner decides to run again, this time for mayor. There's Kevin Faulkner, again, like this sort of uh, guy waiting in the wings. Faulkner won both his city council seat and the mayor's office in special elections, succeeding men who had been brought down in scandal. And that informed Faulkner as a politician. Here's David Garrick, city politics reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Um, he wants to be liked, and he's good at that. Um, I think he's very focused on his image. He has a, a large PR staff to focus on talking about his accomplishments and focusing again and again on what he's accomplished and what his goals are and what his ambitions are. Um, he's a very likable person. Um, he's been a Republican with a Democratic-controlled city council during his entire tenure, so he's sort of always been part of a divided government. So there's always a sense of cautiousness about how he goes about things. Kevin Faulkner's, like, whole approach to everything is, like, caution. You know, just, he's always, like, the most cautious person. To a point where I think it's more dangerous politically for him than he may think it is. You know, like, the guy who merges onto a freeway and is super scared, or the woman who's super scared, or the guy who's super scared, and they merge really slowly onto the freeway. And that's actually more dangerous than if they were just, like, a little bit more confident about it. I think in similar ways, like, that's how... Uh, Kevin Faulkner is politically like he was always very cautious. So it kind of makes sense why a politician like Faulkner would think putting together a citizen's task force to assemble a stadium plan made the most sense. Radio host and NFL sideline reporter Scott Kaplan. We in San Diego had been turned off by the phrase task force because everything has a task force. 
This one would come to be known as the Citizen Stadium Advisory Group, or CSAG for short. Well, you know what happened is the CSAG was put together to create Fabiani's term, political cover. It allowed the mayor to say, I've got these guys working on it and they'll get it done. And if they don't, it's not me, it's them. The nine members of this group were San Diego's last hope to keep the team. We spoke with two of its members. One of them, its chairman, is Adam Day. Our task was to to try to bring um, uh, answers to two key questions. Uh, One, where to locate a new stadium. Uh, and two, how to finance it. So why was he picked to lead the group? This is what Day had to say for himself. Ironically, I'm not I'm not a big sports guy. Um, I don't really follow sports. I'm not emotionally tied to um, our financial investment with the with the teams, and uh, so I, I couldn't you know a joke with my wife because I didn't know uh, what a fullback was or what a halfback was. I didn't follow the draft. I don't know any of that stuff. So um, I think that was probably part of the um, the attraction for for Kevin to look for someone like me because I really wasn't emotionally invested in in this whole situation. The other CSAG member that we spoke to was very emotionally invested in the Chargers. It's their former COO, Jim Steig. I think I was selected because I was, A, passionate about trying to still keep the team there, but uh, I think they knew that I, I knew more about the stadium building and also the NFL. But when Steig was called up by Kevin Faulkner to participate in CSAG, he was blunt with the new mayor. I went down to see him and basically, you know, kind of friend to friend and said, listen, I, I'm, I'm telling you this right now is that they're gone. You got like a 1% chance to get them back in. And you've got to figure out some way, shape or form to take advantage of that 1% chance. Even with Jim Steig's warning, the mayor stuck to his plan. While Stan Kroenke was charging headfirst into the LA market, San Diego's answer was to put together a group to come up with a plan to maybe build a stadium. There are times when you have elected people do what's expected of them to do, and that's to make bold decisions. That voice belongs to Mayor James Butts. He's the mayor of the city of Inglewood, where Stan Kroenke was working on a stadium of his own for the Rams. It began years before any ground was broken. And as ESPN Los Angeles' George Sedano recalls, Kroenke's Inglewood plan wasn't a particularly new idea. Let's not forget that the Raiders, uh, that site was proposed for the Raiders on a couple of different occasions in a potential return to Los Angeles, and that never came to fruition. When the Raiders fell through, Stan Kroenke stepped in. Here's John Gennaro. The media would send requests to him saying, what are you planning to build on this massive piece of land you just bought? And he would say, a super Walmart. Because, as you know, he's married to, to, into the, the Walmart family, the Walton family. Mayor Butts recalled his first interaction with Stan Kroenke all the way back in the summer of 2014. A gentleman named Stan Kroenke wanted to meet with me out of the blue. And we met at 1 o'clock on a weekday in City Hall. And uh, I had never met the man, never seen the man. And we came and we talked in a talk that ordinarily probably lasted 15 minutes for him. And it ended up being an hour and a half. And we worked out the framework of what would be interest for both parties. Inglewood took a different route than San Diego. There was no task force. Instead, a petition circulated that brought the stadium issue straight to the city council. There was just one vote of five people. And we knew, obviously by the vote, that this was good for the city. So what was there to do? What, what, this is what you have to do. If there's an option, put it to a vote, vote it in. Easy decision. And it turned out to be the right decision. In Kroenke, Inglewood had an NFL owner who was willing to finance a stadium entirely on his own. Mayor Butts saw this as their golden opportunity and acted swiftly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Time is money. Back in San Diego, the Chargers still had to put together a football team. We talked to a couple of players who were both brought in from free agency amidst all this turmoil. And what struck me was how they both commented about how quickly they signed with the team. This was offensive tackle Chris Hairston. I mean, it was actually, I think it took all of three or four hours, maybe, you know, 
He called me one night. I came in the next day. Uh, saw the facilities. I met a few of the people. And here's Joe Barksdale, another offensive tackle. When I showed up to the Chargers, I mean, they were really excited to have me there. They actually didn't let me leave. I was supposed to get, <laughs> catch a flight to visit the Jets next. They didn't let me leave. I ended up signing with the team like the next morning, and I was at workouts that day too. And while Barksdale looks back on that decision as hasty, I actually still beat myself up about it because uh, I had other teams I was planning on visiting after I came to the Chargers. But that being said, I was in a bad headspace. I didn't think anybody wanted me. I thought I was going to be out the league. So, and like looking back on it, even as I'm telling you, like I was a fucking idiot for doing that. Like I should have went back home. Hairston was excited to sign with the team. I mean, this seemed like a good fit. I liked the town. It was like, it was my first time out on the West Coast. So I was pretty excited to come in. But even Hairston didn't realize what kind of off-field climate he was walking into. I had zero idea about it. Um, I didn't really follow the team much growing up or anything. Uh, so kind of the, the whole moving process and the whole deal with that, it just kind of popped up. Right around the time that Barksdale and Hairston were joining the team, the Chargers were responding to the announcement of CSAG. Here's Jim Steak. We got ambushed at the beginning by Mark Fabiani, who came in to meet with us and gave us a, um, you know, one of the first meetings we had was with him to get the input of what they wanted to do. And he basically came in and lambasted us for doing this and released his epistle to the media before he even came in and talked to us. So when we walked out of the meeting, we were confronted by the media to respond to that. As Scott Lewis remembers, the tone of Fabiani's rhetoric began to shift. I remember thinking to myself, why is he being nice to me? Like he kind of switched his his perspective. And I think it's at that point, something happened in 2014 or so where the Chargers decided that they weren't going to try to make it work here, that they really did want to move to L.A., and um, and at that point, he became an agent of making that possible. That timeline matches up exactly with the one that we got from someone else. I think it was probably about twenty end of 2014 sometime. That's the closest recollection I have. That's the voice of Mayor Albert Robles. He was the mayor of the city of Carson, another Los Angeles suburb. You may recall from last episode that the Chargers first held training camp in Carson in 2003, to absolutely zero fanfare. Well, at the end of 2014, Carson got a call from a lawyer about building a stadium. So at the outset, it was very hush-hush, and I was told by the attorney, he said, no, no, this time it's different. This time, there's a team. It's not just about building the stadium and hoping that a team comes there's a team. And we said, uh, who is the team? And they wouldn't say who it was. Now there's two teams. It's not just one team. There's two teams. And the question is, well, who are the teams? It's like, we can't tell you. And it's like, uh, but if you know anything about football, you can probably guess who the two teams are. I think we asked him, have you got a deal in place or anything like that to move to L.A.? or anything like that. And he said, no, he didn't have one to LA, did have one to move to Carson. So, you know, three days, four days later, they announced their joint venture with the Raiders and Carson. So The unthinkable was happening. The Chargers were planning to move to LA with their most bitter rivals, the Raiders, the freaking Raiders. But for Jim Steig, it made perfect sense. It's a connection that goes back generations between the Spanos family and the Davis family, who owns the Raiders franchise. Al Davis was a master of manipulation of owners. Um, If you were a new owner in the league, he saddled up to you like you were this long-lost best friend and all that sort of stuff. He'd eventually take advantage of it, off of his relationship, whether that was in a trade or whatever it was. and he, you know, Alex was one of those guys that he sat up to the minute Alex got into the league. I think there was a relationship there. It was just that it was two franchises that you could classify as maybe two of the poorest in, of, in the NFL coming together. And that was the toughest thing. 
The Spanos family's wealth is largely tied up in the team. In 2018, Forbes listed the family's net worth as $2.4 billion, and that same year, the Chargers franchise was valued at $2.3 billion. Mark Davis and Dean Spanos are both heirs to, um, you know, their, their fathers are the ones who built their storied historic franchises. They inherited them. And so they were considered like a second or a different class of NFL owners compared to the new money owners, the Jerry Jones, the Stan Kroenke's, these people who had far more wealth that was from outside of the NFL and they had, um, you know, they, they had this like image of being like these new savvy, you know, luxurious. Uh, and so the, 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 the battle between those groups is really what characterizes this uh, discussion. With the Chargers Raiders plan in Carson looming over their heads, CSAG pushed for weeks to turn in a plan ahead of schedule. When they revealed their outline for building a new stadium on the site of the old one, there was something familiar about it. Which was, again, another version of this same one that we've been talking about since 2000, 2003, which is that the land around Qualcomm Stadium is worth a lot of money. Let's either develop it or sell it. We'll make the money from that and we'll use the money to build a stadium. I mean, that basic outline has, again, been the basic outline for all of these things for years. The only real difference between the Chargers plan in 2005 and the city's plan in 2015? The price tag. They did not want any more stadiums like NRG or whatever in Houston, $400 million, $300, $500, $600 million. They wanted $1.5 billion. They wanted $2 billion sound studios. You know, they wanted these like, and the the owners, you know, the culture of the ownership had built to a point uh, of like just extreme extravagance and like this kind of pissing contest about who would have uh, the biggest, most luxurious digs. CSAG was going to have to sell their pricey plan with showmanship. And they tried. They even got broadcasting legend Dick Enberg to narrate a video announcing CSAG's vision for the stadium site. The most economical site to develop a new NFL stadium has also been specifically designed to provide the NFL with the best Super Bowl venue in the country. San Diego, a beautifully sculpted land, has been the home of the Chargers for over 50 years. And oh my, it's the only true home of the Chargers. The Chargers hated it. Led by Mark Fabiani, they broke off all negotiations with the city. I asked Jim Steig what it felt like to be left out to dry by his former colleague. I I guess I look back on my relationship with him and what he did and how he, uh, I feel manipulated by it. When I was with the Chargers, I, I mean, they kind of, they made a decision in 06 to take me out of dealings with the um, on the stadium issues. Uh, and I think part of it is that Mark wanted total control over um, what was going on and the conversations. And he wanted to paint his own picture. Despite all their efforts, CSAC was doomed to fail. Like Steeg had warned months earlier, San Diego had a 1% chance of keeping the team. They needed to throw a Hail Mary, and instead, they ran time off the clock. The person in this chapter of the story who I feel for the most, more than even the players and fans, is Jim Steig. He was on both sides of this fight at one point or another. The man who had come to San Diego in 2004, hoping to bring a Super Bowl ring and a new stadium to the city that he saw as full of opportunity, would leave without both. Literally, the, we gave the CSAG report, and I came home to my wife and says, uh, we're leaving this week, we're going to go look for a house in North Carolina. And uh, we had found a house within two weeks, and we moved within a year to get down here because I just did not want to be around when all that stuff was going on. So I thought it was going to be devastating the community um, in a lot of ways, which... It's one of the great disappointments of my life, so I can't, you know, and I live with it forever. You might be wondering why the Chargers said no to a plan where their stated contribution would be around $300 million, far less than the five to $600 million that the Spanoses would have to pay in an NFL relocation fee if they shipped up to Los Angeles. It certainly remained a mystery to players on the team, 
who were kept in the dark about the organization's inner workings. Chris Hairston described team meetings when the subject came up. There's little information as possible. Uh, you know, they, it was basically kind of a roundup just to kind of save, you know, you asked any questions about, about it in the media that you can basically say it's above your pay grade. Uh, I mean, outside of that, it was like, they would always reiterate it was just something that the guys up top would handle and, you know, just uh, part of the business, I guess. But what Chris and the other players we spoke with did have was a front row seat to playing for the team itself. We asked Joe Barksdale if the team was providing any sort of physical or emotional support to players off of the field. Fuck no. I'm a- <laughs> Sorry, but fuck no. Like, you know, I mean, when you off that field, they don't care. Like, if you're not on the field actively doing football, they don't care. Like, we, the before the move to L.A., like, when we were in San Diego, the eating facility was, like, under a tent outside. Like, under a tent outside with the same company cater, catering every fucking day. Like, it's soul-crushing being a charger. I mean, I don't know how the hell Philip Rivers did it so long. Running back Kenneth Farrow made similar comments about the state of the facilities. I think, like I said, getting to San Diego as a rookie and kind of seeing the facilities and stuff like that is definitely something where you kind of think to yourself, it's like, oh, I've seen some colleges that are, you know what I mean? I've got a couple legs up on, on this organization as a professional team. And, you know, you don't really expect that, but It's, I mean, like I said, it's different from organization to organization. And the only thing you can really look and point to that is like from the top down, you know what I mean? What is the owner doing for that organization for it to be successful? And is he thinking of all the ways it can be successful? And that is, you know, something that obviously lacks in in some places and, you know, San Diego maybe being one of them. This all got us thinking about how NFL franchises make their money and spend it and what that has to do with the Chargers move. The NFL is a loose confederation of 32 owners. This manifests itself in a couple of ways. By banding together and negotiating contracts as a whole, the NFL owners got wildly rich over the past several decades. Here's sports economist Victor Matheson. So all television, all televised matches in, uh, in the NFL, that is all, all those contracts are negotiated by the league, not the individual team. So if you're watching an NFL football game on TV, uh, you are watching a contract that has been negotiated by the NFL itself, and all that money goes into the league and then is redistributed from the league. All the teams get an equal slice of the cake. For instance, the Chargers, like every other NFL team, brought in $226.4 million in 2014 just from national revenue alone. And that doesn't even account for the local revenue, like ticket sales and luxury boxes, which each franchise keeps for themselves. You've heard the phrase poor billionaires used to describe the Spanos and Davis families in this episode. I can't believe I have to say this, but there is no such thing as a poor billionaire. This entire struggle over keeping the Chargers in San Diego had nothing to do with the national revenue, which represents the lion's share of income for many teams like the Chargers. It was for that smaller fraction of ticket sales and luxury boxes, the money that would not be leaving the team. And yet, as the Chargers were failing to invest in their facilities, Mark Fabiani was making the rounds on radio and television, saying things like this on local station KPBS. What do you want to tell the fans uh, about the Chargers' commitment to staying in San Diego? I would ask them to look at the last 14 years of work that we've done, look at all the money that we've spent, and I would ask them to pretend that this was their business. Would they allow one or two other teams to move into a nearby market, Los Angeles County and Orange County, take 25% of the business, and then leave you here in San Diego with an ancient stadium at that point and no options? Most people wouldn't wouldn't do that if it was their business. Saying things like the Chargers would lose 25% of business if other teams moved to Los Angeles was a purposeful exaggeration with many assumptions built in. And those fans that Fabiani was speaking to in that moment, they were about to say their piece. It's now October of 2015. Football season is well underway. And the NFL decided to hold hearings for fans in each of the three cities that were threatened with relocation to Los Angeles, St. Louis, 
Oakland, and San Diego. With tensions high, hundreds of Chargers fans gathered in a packed downtown theater. The audio is a little bit raw here, so please bear with us. Our goal here tonight is to hear from you. We want to make sure we hear from the fans and from all members of the community. But before the fans would have their turn, someone else was going to say a few words. Mark Fabiani. We are going to hear very, very I mean, listen to that. These are fans who desperately want the team to stay. That's not exactly a group of people who sound open to what Fabiani has to say. As Scott Lewis noted earlier, Fabiani had become an agent of change to get the Chargers to Los Angeles. He had become the physical embodiment of the team's move, and he was employing the skills that he had honed with decades as a political messenger to become the scapegoat. It was scorched earth. When that 2015 season was coming to a close, the team was not good. In fact, they were miserable. They were 3-10 going into their final home game of the season. Chris Hairston started that game at left tackle. Uh, it was almost like, like it was it was. It was kind of creepy because it was like, it was almost like we were gone. Like everybody had already kind of come to terms. And again, John Gennaro. So I, I got hired by Vice Sports to write a story about that game. And just the, the feelings around it, not the game itself, the feelings around it. And so, you know, I got there really early and I'm walking through the parking lot. I'm interviewing people and I felt very detached from it because I was like playing journalist, right? And I'm getting these emotions from other people. And I remember going like, man, these people are really emotional like it's just sports guys like come on but as the game wore on the chargers played incredibly they won 30 to 14 philip rivers the man who had spent a dozen years in san diego simply because of eli manning's reluctance to do the same you can almost hear the lump in his throat if it is the last one um, and that was kind of what i told the guys after before the game was this they've been playing football in this town before any of us were born and there's people that are going to be at that game today that we're coming to games before we were born and uh but we get to we get to close it out if it is the end we get to finish it off so you know it's a, it, it truly is an honor to be a quarterback in the nfl and and essentially when you're a quarterback of a team in the nfl and you've been blessed enough as i have to stay in the same place for 12 years you become the quarterback of that town rivers like kept going into the locker room and coming back out i think with like more stuff to give away um and there was a moment where I felt like like a big ball welled up in my throat. Eyes got watery and I was like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna break me. They're gonna break me emotionally. I can feel all this coming. Chance broke out, people screaming, save our bolts. Save our bolts! Save our bolts! Save our bolts! Save our bolts! Um and then they, of course they came back the next year and played again in San Diego. There was a whole nother year. The NFL owners voted on the two competing plans for LA in January of 2016. Whichever plan was picked wouldn't just be a home venue for an NFL team. It would be the NFL's compound in the entertainment capital of the world. And while the Carson plan was for a stadium, the Inglewood plan was for a palace. Stan Kroenke, with his vast wealth as his resource, took a much different approach for the L.A. market than Dean Spanos. Here's ESPN L.A. radio host, George Sedano. Well, Stan and Jerry Jones are very well connected, you know, and I think that Jerry, you know, some people will tell you he's kind of the de facto commissioner <laughs> of the NFL. Um, you know, he, he has a big, big, big say in the room, you know, and Jerry was the guy who spearheaded Los Angeles in a lot of ways. So I would imagine that Stan's relationship with Jerry Jones had a lot to do with that. When the votes were tallied, it was no contest. The NFL owners approved Stan Kroenke's Inglewood plan by a vote of 30 to 2. The only two opposing votes were Dean Spanos and his partner in the Carson plan, Raiders owner Mark Davis. For Mayor Robles and Carson, it meant an abrupt end to his relationship with the Chargers and the Raiders. I thought it would have been uh, a closer working relationship. Um, between the city and, and the two teams and the representatives. I was surprised 
quite candidly that the that the Chargers didn't seem to want to engage with the community as much as I would have thought. Afterwards, it um, did not improve much. Let me put it that way. It was disappointing that once the decision was made by the NFL that um, the Chargers nor the Raiders uh, were as appreciative, I guess, or as thankful. I mean, a simple acknowledgement would have been nice. It also meant that his great civic dream was going up in smoke. There's an excitement that comes with the NFL that uh, is second to none. Um, There's just this excitement, this buzz of the idea of your city becoming uh, an NFL city is uh, an awesome high. It was a great excitement. And then the way it ended, it was depressing. It wasn't a pleasant feeling, but it almost validated the suspicions that this was all just a a big show, that the NFL knew what they were going to do from the very get-go, that they knew that they were going to go to uh, Inglewood. You know... This whole Chargers moving situation just stinks for everyone. But Bolted doesn't stink. You know why? Because support for Bolted is brought to you by Manscaped, who has a new line of refined cologne. This signature Manscaped scent has got a nice citrus burst, a gentle touch of sandback jasmine, and even better, it's made cruelty-free, dye-free, paraben-free, vegan, and with hypoallergenic ingredients. This is a San Diego-based company with a global reach. Manscaped is trusted by over two! Men worldwide get 20% off and free shipping with the code BOLTED at manscaped.com. That's promo code B O L T E D at manscaped.com. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop that pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, Your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees for sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com slash sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. So why did the NFL land on the Inglewood plan? There's two important things about this deal in understanding what would come. First, they gave the Chargers the option to join Kroenke in LA. And it was a really, really good financial deal for the Spanoses. And, uh, and this was the moment where they say... Okay, you have a year to figure something out in San Diego, and um, if you if you uh, will let you move to LA with Stan Kroenke, they have none of these cost overrun responsibilities. They don't have to sell any uh, seat guarantees. They can um, they can get into a beautiful new stadium for just a bargain, and they present that deal to the Chargers and say like, you can hold that over San Diego's head. Try to get something done. The Chargers would be able to lease the Inglewood Stadium for a dollar a year for 20 years and contribute much less to the cost of the stadium than the Rams. But the second point, and perhaps most important, if Spanos didn't exercise this option, the Raiders would have the right to take it. If the NFL hadn't put that provision in there, I don't think they would have moved right then. Or I, I don't think they would have set up anything that they did after 2015 because uh, they were not going to allow the Raiders to take that deal. They did not want their their nightmare was to have the Rams and Raiders in L.A. and them in, in San Diego fighting for this Southern California market. So he decides right away, like, fine, I'm going to just take this um, because I cannot stand the, the idea of the Raiders moving to L.A., And the NFL's reasoning for giving the Chargers such insanely good terms to move to L.A.? They never thought they'd do it. Even as Mark Fabiani was messaging this. 
What is your response briefly to criticism of saying that this is a bluff? You're just doing this to kind of strong arm <laughs> the city into giving you a better deal in San Diego. Again, if people think that, they have the right to think that. It's not our job to talk them out of that. I would just say, look at the last 14 years of work. Dean Spanos and his family have never bluffed before. They've never made a threat to the city before. They've had plenty of opportunities to relocate to Los Angeles. Many different stadiums have been proposed up there. They've never taken any of those opportunities. But again, people can think what they want. If, if they think it's a bluff, they should just, I guess, keep watching, see what happens. Spanos didn't get to control his destiny in his first attempt to move to L.A., but he would be calling the shots in a contentious return down south. So they come here and they put together an absolutely unimaginably luxurious deal for themselves with a big increase to the hotel room tax right in the middle of downtown. That deal was a ballot initiative that would be dubbed Measure C. Because it was a tax increase in Prop 13's California, it would need a whopping two-thirds majority to pass. So, like, what exactly was it? Here's economist Sam Young with more. It would have increased the hotel occupancy tax from 10.5% to 16.5%. According to the reports that I saw, the public contribution was supposed to be north of $1 billion. Now, that's a large amount of money, but the measure was crafted to try to keep the San Diego taxpayer out of it and to appeal to sensibilities not to use public money. This is another tried-and-true play from the NFL Stadium playbook. Sports economist Victor Matheson. This is done largely for a uh, for political reasons, right? Because uh, often locals don't want to be taxed for something that they see as a giveaway to billionaire owners and millionaire players. But if you sell it as something like, hey, we're, we're going to put uh, taxes on rental cars, we're going to put taxes on hotels, uh, then, it, you know, it's someone else is paying for the stadium being built. And at least on the surface, that seems like a good argument. Uh, turns out economically, that's a terrible argument. So perhaps this is the reason that, for a very long time, Mayor Kevin Faulkner did not endorse Measure C. But he wasn't exactly against it either. NBC7's Derek Togerson. So he he never really jumped in on either side. I think he probably put together the CSAC thing thinking, they're not going to take it anyway, but it looks like we're trying. So I think he played it, if I'm going to crystallize it, I think Mayor Faulkner played it in a way that made him look the best from both sides. The cautious politician was being cautious, because as Scott Lewis describes, the opposition against Measure C was strong and only mounting. There was no negotiations. The Chargers put together their own dream vision. They had basically a a couple months to put something together, something that would usually take a couple years to pull together to get any kind of buy-in from interest groups, downtown groups, politicians, labor unions, uh, hotel owners, uh, tourism industry, all these people you would want to get on board with these negotiations. They, They simply had no time. And so they got in a room, they paid a bunch of people a couple million dollars to draw something up to their like perfect degree and they did not a single bit of an, of negotiation uh, openly acknowledging that they couldn't and wouldn't do any negotiation the chargers made little effort to reach out to the mechanisms of the political machine that they would need to get a whopping two-thirds majority city council member chris kate i was somewhat hopeful you know when especially when they say oh we're going to do an initiative great you know okay are you going to come to us and say here's what our our thoughts are on the initiative what it would look like um from a policy standpoint it'd be nice to weigh in on that and as opposed to being dropped you know the initiative and here you go and this is what it's going to be without any kind of guiding input you know um that was that kind of took the air out of the bag a little bit for from my from my standpoint when you know there could be an opportunity to do, to do something and and build a coalition. And then when observers started parsing through the weeds of Measure C, it begged some very big questions. Um, you take into the fact as well that there are a number of people in the convention industry who are experts who I rely on and we count on who said that this will not work. Conventions. They bring in millions and millions of dollars to San Diego, and all of those out-of-town guests pay a hotel tax. There's one problem with San Diego's convention center, though. It's too small. The Chargers thought they could solve their stadium problem by solving the convention center's problem. Then the Chargers sort of step into that, and they're like, they realize, like, well, that's a big pot of money. 
you should build a more campus-like convention center experience. And if you put a roof on it, we can play football there too. And so it becomes this, I kept calling it a convadium, and they started using that term more across the country. And, and even the Chargers used it once, which was probably the greatest career success I've ever had is to coin a term like that. This so-called convadium wasn't going to actually be connected to the convention center. That was a sticking point for one convention in particular, San Diego's most important convention, the one that's the farthest thing from football you could possibly imagine. Look, I go to Comic-Con every year. I love it. People in those costumes are not going to want to walk an extra five blocks to go out to whatever convention space, which basically most of it was the floor of the stadium in that plan. Comic-Con wants a different kind of convention center. And by the way, Comic-Con's more important to us than you guys are. From a financial standpoint, Derek Togerson is right. San Diego's Tourism Authority announced that in 2019, Comic-Con alone brought $150 million to the area. That's like a Super Bowl every year. Everybody sees the hotel room tax as this like, like, you know, donut in the sky of money that all they have to do is get it. And nobody has been able to get it yet. It's just crazy. And so the Chargers look at that and see like, oh, that's our donut too. We can get that if we can get the hotel owners to support our plans. But the hotel owners just never liked it. And they never cared about the Chargers. They just never saw the Chargers as that big of a deal to San Diego. And there was another problem. If the money raised for the stadium by the hotel tax still fell short, who was going to cover it? If you read the initiative carefully, the city was on the hook. The city was liable for the bonds that were going to be issued, um, operations and maintenance. I mean, a whole host of things that I didn't feel comfortable having the city put in that position given where we still are from a financial standpoint and what's at stake. What if it doesn't fund all the way? What if there's a shortfall one year? What if 2008 happens again and we have a big recession in this country? And that takes a hit. And Mark said, the city is under no obligation to dip into the general fund. I said, so who pays for the shortfall? Mark said, the city is under no obligation to take money from the general fund because they weren't. But also the way that thing was written was charters ain't paying for it. So when a city has a shortfall, what's the first place you go to because you have the disposable income? The general fund. And what makes the general fund? Taxpayer dollars. We talked to Togerson over a year ago, back in January of 2020. And it's kind of eerie listening back to that quote in hindsight. This exact nightmare scenario has played out. The COVID-19 pandemic has sent the economy into a nosedive, and the tourism industry specifically has been decimated. San Diego would have been on the hook for a billion-dollar stadium at the exact same time it would have been completely unable to pay for it. The more prodding there was from the opposition, the more retaliation there was from the Chargers. Chris Kate was the most vocal opponent to Measure C on the city council. Um, again, when they're spending thousands of dollars in attack ads just on me alone, as opposed to trying to sell the initiative, kind of a clear tell of what was potentially on their minds and what their pr- true purpose was. And at times, the attack ads came with dire consequences. Aside from the death threats, um, you know, it wasn't fun, you know. Um, I kind of see why they did it, you know, even though there were a lot of other vocal opponents to it i was a relative new council member was on for you know a year and a half um they wanted to use me as an example whatever else you know you get calls from family members and my family's all in san diego and they're all chargers fans like what the hell's going on <laughs> what's going what's going on here um the calls to my staff you know the the shit my staff had to put up with um on those phone calls i mean it was it was a it was a childish move And meanwhile, all this time, Mayor Faulkner was still nowhere in this campaign. He had already been re-elected to a second and final term in June of 2016. Why wasn't he taking a side? Once again, Scott Lewis. When people see him on the street, he would constantly be getting the message like, why didn't you want to build a stadium for the Chargers? Or when can we get a stadium for the Chargers? Build a stadium for the Chargers. And he never wanted to tell those people, no, 
Like he just, he wanted to be seen as a person who worked to help them. And he knew that it would fail. He thought he could be on board and he would be there to help them build something else. The mayor did wind up announcing his support for Measure C in October of 2016, just a few weeks before the election. But even that move, consistent with his nature, was done with caution. Uh, You know, again, if you look back at his statements, he never said, vote for this. He would only say, like, I support the Chargers or something, you know. It was characterized as an endorsement, but he very conspicuously would never say, vote yes on Measure C. He would just say, like, you know, the Chargers are important and I support the Chargers. And you'd say, well, what about all these people that you're allies with who don't like this plan? Oh, they're entitled to their opinion. He didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't a fiery advocate for this proposal. He was a he was a reluctant person who was unwilling to oppose it. Going into election day, Measure C was considered dead on arrival. Inside the Chargers organization, employees were quietly pondering their fates. Marisa Canapa worked in the Chargers PR department during their final season in town. We were talking about it a lot because it obviously is a huge impact. Everyone has to move. Um, and it's not very far again, but at the same time, it's like a lot of players were just kind of like, oh, we love San Diego. Like, you know, it's a bummer to leave. And then there were a lot of guys on the team that were stoked to move to L.A. Um, in terms of employees, everyone was kind of talking about it um, quietly, but it was definitely a topic of discussion. When the results rolled in on election night 2016, San Diego was shocked. Not by the failure of Measure C, which only won 43% of the vote, by something much bigger. John Gennaro was covering the election for San Diego radio station, the Mighty 1090. I also think, like, again, one of those bad timing things, right? They got caught up in a really weird moment. Because that night, the night of the vote, some point about halfway through, it became very, very apparent that Donald Trump was going to become president. And it was such a mind-blowingly big thing that that was happening that we kind of stopped talking about Measure C. And it wasn't because like we were just ignoring the charge. It was like, oh my God, this thing that everyone's been saying for months could never possibly happen is happening. What the hell does that mean? And so the next day, no one wanted to talk about Measure C and what did and didn't happen and where do we go from here. Everyone was just so blown away by what happened in the presidential election that the Chargers were an afterthought. Had that not happened in that election, I do think that, you know, shortly after that, that election goes south, the Chargers go like, let's try and find other options. What else can we do? Um, And the NFL would have given them extension after extension to try and figure it out. But they just got completely ignored by a much bigger story, which is so very San Diego. Can you think of a more Chargers ending to this election? The organization that saw decades of opportunity to win Super Bowls go by had fallen flat again, this time on the ballot. And they were overshadowed while doing it. But back at Chargers Park, as Marisa Canepa remembers, the signs were clear that the team would be leaving. Yes, they did. I remember one day um, corporate movers came through the office and were like measuring file cabinets and stuff like that. And we all were like, well, (laughs) this doesn't seem promising. (laughs) The attitude among fans had shifted too. It was no longer just divisive. It was downright toxic. Because I do think in the 2016 year, it was a lot of you know, people would go to the games going like, oh, it might be my last time to see him. I have to go. And then other people going, why are you wasting your money on them? You know, they're leaving. Um, it did build up a lot of hatred that year. Joe Barksdale was on the field during that final year in town. And his experience was truly awful. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. The Chargers have like the worst fan base I've ever seen. Like even, and I understand the stadium sucked. I understand the team wasn't winning games, but even at the beginning of the season, like I've played games the games in Charger stadiums are just like away games. You play 16 away games a year. And then it doesn't help that the team's fucking losing because now you got, you know, all these fans that are super brave behind keyboards and barricades talking shit. Like, and then the protests started happening with the, uh, you know, people taking knees during the national anthem to protest injustice and police brutality. 
and fans just use it, use that as an opportunity to start throwing racist slurs and shit at people who are just trying to do something that the NFL won't even really speak on. Like the NFL doesn't even do a good job of stopping domestic violence. Like they're not going to talk about stopping like racial injustice. Someone's got to talk about it. And when the players do it and those players are on losing ass teams, I mean, I, I heard nigger more times in San Diego than I did in Louisiana. Like I fucking hate San Diego fans. Like I don't, I, as a musician, I don't know if I will be able to go back to San Diego just because, like, I get so fucking pissed whenever I think about it. Like, I'm, I wasn't even 100% sure I wanted to do this because, like, I get, like, physically angry whenever I think about <clears throat> everything related to San Diego Chargers. And it ain't just because of the team. It's because of fans, too. I mean, and I know y'all don't want to hear It's because of people like y'all, you know, who are in sports media and bastardizing the experience. And not realizing like the real effects that making a quick buck by saying some bullshit, you know, those long lasting effects. At a Christmas Eve game against the Raiders, Scott Kaplan got an inside scoop straight from the source. And so I'm walking on the sidelines before the game because I was covering the game for CBS television. And I'm walking on the sidelines before the game and Dean Spanos walks up to me and unsolicited, he puts his hand out to shake my hand. And said, um, hey, I want to thank you. And I was like, wow, thanks. You know, I'm surprised to hear you say this, but thank you. And he's like, you know, and if, this is Dean talking. He's like, you know, and if, if we would have gotten the 50%, we would have stayed and fought and, and gone to the Supreme Court. And, you know, but, but because we didn't get 50%, you know, I, we can't do that. And I'm like, hold on, time out. You're speaking in the terms that are past tense. You're, you're, you're talking about we would have done this if done that. Have you made your decision? Are you moving to L.A.? And Spano says to me, well, we're leaning that way. I get on the microphone. I tell the truck, the CBS truck, hey, I just spoke to Dean Spanos. Oh my God, you're not going to believe this. He just told me that he's now leaning towards moving to LA. I got to report this story. That started the storm. Okay. Fabiani calls me a couple days after. And he says, um, Dean really did you a big favor, didn't he? I said, what, what was that? He goes, well, he, he gave you the scoop. I said, oh, you motherfuckers, you set me up. You set me up and you used me. You, you guys knew that what Dean was going to say to me, which is why he came to me, you knew Big Mouth over here was going to hurry up and try and report it on TV, which I did. You guys completely set me up so that instead of the Chargers making some announcement, hey, we're leaving, we'd already softened it because everybody knew it was coming. I mean, just incredible. I mean, Fabiani, what a manipulator. On New Year's Day 2017, the Chargers played their final game at Qualcomm Stadium. Just like the year before, the team was awful, finishing in last place in the division. Many didn't even bother to show up, but others couldn't miss the final opportunity to see the San Diego Chargers, no matter how painful. Derek Huerta spent the afternoon recording everything he saw, so this is our last time walking up to the stadium from the car. It's kind of a weird feeling. Like, it, it doesn't, like, it just feels like we're walking up the stadium. But, like, in my head, I'm still thinking, like, this could be it, you know? Remember, Chargers fans had already said a heartfelt goodbye one year earlier in the 2015 home finale against the Dolphins. The prevailing attitude this time around wasn't melancholy. It was exhaustion and bitterness. Chance broke out during the game. And fans were not yelling, save our bolts. If you couldn't make that one out, it's fuck you, Spanos. There was no mass hysteria. Nothing like what we saw when the Chargers returned triumphantly from Pittsburgh in 1995 prior to their only Super Bowl appearance. It was just apathy. It's definitely the end of the game, too. As I was mentioning last year, from the differences from the Dolphins game. Dolphins game last year, when it felt like it was goodbye, you had people staying for quite, quite some time after the game. And Rivers and Gates and Weddle and people coming out, signing out autographs. No one wanted to leave. This year, they kind of just turned the lights off on us and said, get out. Just 11 days later, the Chargers left. 
There was no press conference, no meeting, only a tweet. I remember when the news came through, I was driving, and it was, it was devastating. It was, it was like a, it was like a gut punch, jaw-dropping gut punch, because at that point, people still didn't believe they would go. The tweet read, quote, a letter from Dean Spanos. After much deliberation, I have made the decision to relocate the Chargers to Los Angeles, beginning with the 2017 NFL season. ESPN, everybody below Dean Spanos and maybe Tom Telesco found out on ESPN. So, like, as pissed off as I get about, like, shit that's been done to me, I get even more pissed off about, like, the good folks that were upstairs that got fucked over that no one. You know, the people, you don't hear about those stories. San Diego has been our home for 56 years. It will always be a part of our identity. And my family and I have nothing but gratitude and appreciation for the support and passion our fans have shared with us over the years. That's what I remember is the absolute shock. And then I thought to myself, as the guy who was covering this, um, as invested as anyone, um, and certainly the guy covering it for my paper and the guy who was supposed to know um, and I had been assured by so many people that I trusted that there was at least going to be some more time given. I thought, am I wrong? But today, we turn the page and begin an exciting new era as the Los Angeles Chargers. By the time it actually happened, it was it seemed to be such a foregone conclusion that I think I was a little bit shocked at the amount of like rage I still felt. L.A. is a remarkable place. And while we played our first season there in 1960 and have had fans there ever since, our entire organization knows that we have a tremendous amount of work to do. We must earn the respect and support of LA football fans. We must get back to winning. And we must make a meaningful contribution, not just on the field, but off the field, as a leader and champion for the community. So I was was enraged then that it happened. I'm still, to a degree, enraged because it was our franchise. And it was loyally supported through good and bad. The Chargers are determined to fight for L.A., and we are excited to get started. Signed, Dean. End quote. There's a very famous saying. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. At various times, it's been attributed to Albert Einstein, Mark Twain, and even Benjamin Franklin. However, Numerous investigations into the phrase's first use can't find record of it being used before 1981. That's when it appeared in a pamphlet circulated in a Knoxville, Tennessee, Al-Anon meeting. According to their website, Al-Anon is a mutual support program for people whose lives have been affected by someone else's drinking. I like this story because so often we're told this lie that it takes great people to accomplish great things. It's easier to believe that exceptional people come up with wise sayings when, really, it's just ordinary people trying to better themselves. It's easy to look at the story of the Chargers leaving San Diego as the product of Stan Kroenke's sheer power and will to execute his own vision in Inglewood. That Dean Spanos and Mayor Faulkner were simply outmatched by greater forces at play. But rather, I think the story can be better explained as people doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The city could have banded together and voted to increase their taxes, but they didn't. Dean Spanos could have been a unifier, brought civic and business leaders together, and created a deal that worked for everyone. He didn't. The Chargers could have made a last-second, fourth-quarter Super Bowl run to move public sentiment. They didn't. And as for Mayor Faulkner, the politician that so many had observed before as being too cautious, here's Kevin Acey. Much like I would say about Dean Spanos, Kevin Faulkner probably wasn't going to get this done had he done it perfectly, all right? Because he couldn't write the check. But one thing that he didn't do was take a stand. Mayor Faulkner went with the wind and what was politically safe and feel like that there was a lot of frozen by fear in his administration. Everyone did the same thing, just like they had in 2002 and 2005 and 2006 and 2015 and so on. And they expected different results. On the night that the Chargers left, Mayor Faulkner gave his third State of the City address. 
Just two years earlier, brimming with hope, he had announced the formation of his stadium task force. This night, however, he devoted only five sentences to the Chargers' acrimonious departure. But before we go any further, I want to say one thing about today's news. At the end of the day, Dean Spanos was truly never willing to work with us on a stadium solution and demanded a lot more money than we could have ever agreed to. We live in a great city and we will move forward. San Diego didn't lose the Chargers. The Chargers just lost San Diego. Dean Spanos and other members of the Los Angeles Chargers organization declined our request for interview. On the final episode of Bolted, the aftermath that left a football team without fans and football fans without a team. Because by taking that franchise up the road, the value of that franchise rocketed north of $2 billion. And they're only two hours away from you, so you're going to feel that heat. It was like a an organ that the body was rejecting. I don't think anyone within those two organizations really likes each other. There's no winning in this situation, and it freaking sucks. Bolted was written and edited by me, Rafi Cantor. Our producer is Ben Stein. We're mixed by Jordan Cantor, who also wrote and performed our original music. Special thanks to Alex Wu, Ron Cantor, and Nate and Lisa Stein. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.